Welcome to the Journey Women podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Bielis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. Today, we're wrapping up our Women of the Faith series. It's been such a joy to walk through the lives of these women who the Lord used to further His kingdom throughout all the earth. We get to wrap things up with a third-time Journey Women guest, my friend and fellow author, Irene Sun. Irene is sharing Win Wei Xie with us, a woman whose story will encourage you to be unashamed for the sake of the gospel. I can't wait for you to hear more, but before we go there, you know I want to say thank you to those of you who support our podcast through your generous donations. Journey Women is a nonprofit organization that exists to move women to know and love God, to find their hope in the gospel, and to invest deeply in their local churches as they go out on mission for the glory of God. If you'd like to join us in this endeavor, you can learn more at journeywomen.org forward slash give. You know, we are all about God's Word here at Journey Women, and that is why we love telling you about the Dwell Bible app. Their mission is inspired by the psalmist who encourages us in Psalm 119 to hide the Word of God in our hearts. Dwell makes it easy to listen to Scripture on the go through features like their Holy Ordinary playlists. Simply open Dwell and you can find a playlist of Scripture to listen to when you wake up in the morning or while you're gardening, driving, or cooking. We love the unique features of the Dwell app that really help us get in the Word and stay in the Word. No matter what our daily life entails, we can incorporate Scripture into our daily rhythms. Go to dwellbible.com slash journeywomen to get 10% off a yearly subscription or 30% off Dwell for life. That's dwellbible.com slash journeywomen to commit to Scripture for the rest of this year or for life. Irene, welcome back to the Journey Women podcast. I am so happy to be back. I am happy for any chance that I have to talk to you. You have had such a strong impact on my life just as my friend. And it's really fun to get to get into the closet and share it with other people because you're exactly the type of friend that I hope other people have in their life and that I hope other people will be for other women. So Thanks for allowing me to share you today. Mm, yeah, you are that friend for me too. You know, in that scene in Charlotte's Web, where Wilbur wants Charlotte to sing him a song, and she sings him a song about being in the dung and the dark. You are that friend for me. I love being in the dung and the dark with you. I'm glad that you equated me to Charlotte and not Templeton, because I do feel very <laughs> Templeton-esque many, many times. But this is getting off to a great start, just in yeah. true Hunter and Irene fashion right here. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> in the dung and in the dark. And honestly, that's part of what we're going to talk about today is mm -hmm. just another sister who I would have loved to sit in the dung in the dark with. Tell us who our friend is that we're going to be discussing. So we are going to be talking about a woman by the name of Wen Wei Xie. She also had other names that she went by. So if somebody hasn't heard of her by that name, are there a few other names that she went by during her lifetime that they might recognize? So she was known as Jeanette Lee when she was here in the United States, but she was actually born with the name Wan Tohing. 
And that was the given name by her father. But Wen Weixie was then another name that was given to her by her teacher at school because it means hero in Chinese. And we are going to talk about her as Win, just for simplicity. That's not yes. necessarily what people would have called her, right? Mm-hmm. But that's mm-hmm. what we're going to call her today, just for simplicity's sake. Yes. So we'll call her Win. What are some kind of noteworthy things about Win's story? We'll dive into deeper aspects of her story, but maybe what's a high flyover of her story before we kind of dive into her life? So I encountered Wen's story during a time when we were just going through a lot as a family because we were at the time waiting for the Lord to lead us to our new home. Uh, Hans was applying to churches across the country and we were having, in a way, like we were flourishing because we were establishing all these different relationships with these wonderful churches across the country. But as we were discerning and as we were getting to know each other, one by one, it seems like for one reason or another, we were not good fit for them. And so there was a deep sense of lostness. We, we were in our wilderness wandering at the time and we were waiting upon the Lord. But whenever a door closed, it just felt like nobody wanted us. It felt like we were rejected. And then that was when Melissa Kruger asked me to write this article on Wen. And the thing that stood out the most to me about Wen's story is that she has this favorite refrain. And she would say, I belong to the Lord. I am his responsibility. And she would say this sentence throughout her life whether she was going through imprisonment, whether she was going through being arrested, she just had this steadfast trust in God that because she belongs to him, there was nothing that could happen to her outside of his will. So as we were getting to know these churches and falling in love with these churches and then realizing we were not good fits for these churches, her story gave me a lot of strength and to encourage me to not be ashamed, but to keep supporting my husband as he's applying and continue to love the churches whom we're meeting because we belong to the Lord and we were his responsibility. I love that so much. What are some of the things that happened in her life where you were able to really see her function fearless in the Lord. Wen was born in 1899 in China. And Mm -hmm. I think she was from the southern part of China, where the climate is warmer and closer to the equator. And at the time, baby girls, especially from poor families, were commonly cast away and left to die. And Mm -hmm. so that was her mother's expectation for her, because she did not give her father a son, her mother thought, oh, you know, for sure my husband is going to reject this child. But to her surprise, her father adored her. So in the midst of all of this poverty and just 
difficulty in the beginning of her life, she had the love of her earthly father. And he was determined that his daughter would be educated, even though at the time, no girl was educated. So he enrolled her as the only girl in school when she was only five years old. And mm. he himself was not educated and he was not a Christian. He was an idol worshiper and an ancestor worshiper. And he was superstitious about many things. But even as Gwen recalled the beginnings of her life, she counted as grace, as God's grace to her. And she had a father who had big dreams for his daughter during a time when that was not common. But, you know, her father died when she was only six years old. Heartbreaking. I know, it's it's heart-wrenching. But the worst part was he left behind a huge debt. Some of her earliest memories was that she would have creditors come into her home, press themselves mm -hmm. into her home, and force her mother to pay for a loan that she had no knowledge of and mm. had no money to pay. And so one day creditor came with his henchmen and they pushed themselves into their home. And when remembers her mother hanging onto the door frame and two little toddlers were hanging onto her legs and the creditor pressed her mother's thumbprint onto this piece of paper. And what happened next is just crazy because we can't even imagine it in our day and age. But he forced her thumbprint on this piece of paper and to her mother's horror, that paper was actually a contract to sell Wen's younger sister. Her younger sister was maybe about three years old at the time and the henchman and the creditor took the toddler away from the screaming mother. And that was some of her earliest memories, just being left alone with her mother at the time and being rejected by her family and friends. And nobody wanted to befriend a widow and her daughter. Tell me, was it soon thereafter that they came to faith in Christ? That's right. And so during this time when she was so poor and destitute, that she became really ill. And understandably, the widow was in shambles because she had just lost one daughter and now her older daughter is really, really sick. And so a friend who is a water carrier came to their house to visit them. And the water carrier friend said, well, you should take your daughter to the hospital that's run by the missionaries. And her mother said, no, no, we don't want to have anything to do with those foreigners over there because I heard that those foreigners, they're going to dig out her eyes and turn her eyes into medicine. And the water carrier, seeing how sick Wen was, was so determined to bring her that when her mother went into the kitchen to boil some water, this water carrier essentially kidnapped Wen and carried her on her back all the way to the hospital with wow. the widow mother running after her friend, carrying her daughter away. And when she reached the hospital, huffing and puffing, she said, well, 
the worst that could happen is I'll beat them up if they try to dig out her eyeballs. But to their great surprise, you know, the Lord met them. The Lord found them in that hospital. And um, one of the doctors preached the gospel to the widow and to this little girl. Her name was Jean McBurney. And they discovered that besides having malaria, she was also malnourished and she had hookworms and other parasites in her guts. So in the hospital, she would frequently have night terrors where she would scream for her dead father. And Jean, Dr. Jean told Wen about a heavenly father who loved her. And Wen begged the doctor, 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 please take me to this heavenly father. I want to meet this heavenly father. And Dr. Jean told her, only Jesus can lead you to him. And upon hearing this, Wen cried out her first prayer, Oh, Jesus, lead me to my father. And that was when Dr. Jean preached the gospel to her and the young girl immediately believed. And as she was recovering, Dr. Jean gave her mother a job and brought Wen to the missionary school where she received an education. And that was when they began a new life together, an earthly life, but also a spiritual life. Wow. I love how God used her sickness to bring her to salvation. Mm-hmm. And I feel like mm-hmm. that's like a recurring theme in her story, even though the sickness manifests in different forms. So tell me, though, yeah. what happens next? Like, where does she go from here with her mom? Yeah. So her mom was baptized. And from the very beginning, she just wants to be baptized because she sees her mom being baptized. And the elders of the church would tell her, well, you are too young. Uh, well, you haven't taken the catechism class yet. And she said, well, I'll take the catechism class. So she took the catechism class and she came back and said, well, I want to be baptized. And the elders of the church said, well, you are too young. You, you need to wait a little bit until maybe you, you're a little older to be baptized. She applied again the next year and she said, well, I'm older now. So can I be baptized now? So she went through the class and then she passed the examination, but she was then again advised to wait because of her age. So several months have passed. And so she went to the elders again. She said, I believe in Jesus. I am not willing to wait any longer. I want to be baptized as a proof that I am a Christian. And when the pastors and elders laughed, they laughed at her. And so she stood up to them and said, I won't wait because Jesus said, suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not. Why do you forbid me to be baptized? And she was baptized the very next day. (laughs) She was not quite 10 years old. That is amazing. I know it's an amazing story, but it doesn't end there because then the other adults at church started criticizing her for being a willful child. And, you know, like in the Chinese context, you know, to be a good child, you are to be seen and not heard. And that is not very unlike Western societies during that time. But her willfulness was just not their cup of tea. So... 
they would tell her, you should not have been baptized. The pastor let you leak through because you're so naughty. To which she responded, she says, God knows I'm bad, but he loves me, I'm sure. This is what we Christians call God's wonderful grace. And then with joy that was filling her heart, she went on to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, in its entirety. (laughs) And the church members would just say, you are just such a naughty little girl. And that was, as she recounted in her autobiography, her first taste of being hated by the world because she was not of the world, because she knew that she was chosen by Jesus to be out of the world. I know you guys are loving this conversation with Irene, and because of that, I want to tell you about another sponsor who helped make it possible, Scriptura. We are excited to tell you about Scriptura, a wonderful company that crafts new Bibles with custom leather covers and even restores special or sentimental Bibles that are falling apart. Guys, their work is beautiful. They recently restored my ESV study Bible, and it is gorgeous. Simply fill out a form online with measurements and what you're looking for, and they will reach out with further instructions on how to place your order and ship your Bible. When my restored Bible came back, I couldn't believe how lovely it was. A new or restored Bible from Scriptura would make a great gift for Mother's Day or Father's Day. And for a limited time, Journey Women listeners can receive 15% off their order with the code JOURNEY15. Just go to scriptura.co and use the code JOURNEY15 for 15% off. You've really honed in on this theme where she has other people or circumstances in her life that have the potential for bringing about feelings of shame and guilt, right? Mm-hmm. Is this the the inception of it where you see like, okay, there's the potential for her feeling an extreme amount of shame given you know, the scrutiny of the other church members for her age and all of these things. And yet, what was her response? And how did you see her continue to kind of emulate fear of the Lord and not man as she continued to walk with him throughout her lifetime? Yeah, I think that, Hunter, is a gift from the Lord because she's a young girl. And the way that the Lord has called her out of darkness into his glorious light is that He gave her this gift of feeling this sense of belonging to God and nobody else. And I think that sense of belonging really carried her through for the rest of her life because she had an arranged marriage and her arranged marriage actually went not so well. At such a young age too, right? She was extremely young. Yeah. And so she was uh, given in marriage by her mother at age 15. So that's where like we sometimes we want to listen to these biographies and just have the story end where like they receive Christ and then they live happily ever after. (laughs) Or and then they do this really big thing for God, you know, and sometimes there's like some struggle in between or during or all the way throughout. (laughs) Yeah. and, And I want to hear like really good things about the widow mother who became a Christian, but 
the truth is, is like we are living life in this world. And even though she became a Christian, she was still deeply in her culture. Like she was still deeply immersed in her culture where she gave her daughter away to a stranger and to a young boy who is even younger than Wen. So Wen was 15 at the time and her husband was 14. So that marriage did not go well. But even so, she really believed that even the pain that she was going through was the way that the Lord was molding her and preparing her for his work. So she marries this guy. He's 14 years old. Oh, my goodness. Can't even imagine. How did that go for them? Yeah, I think they were, number one, so young. But then in the hands of her mother-in-law, she wrote that she was despised, scolded, and mistreated even worse than a slave. And Mm. during this time, she was so ashamed and she hated the very earth because it did not open to swallow her up. She dared not speak one rebellious word against her mother-in-law. And she did not want to disobey or dishonor her because she didn't want to, she did not want to dishonor her own mother. But in her heart, she was constantly praying, Oh Lord, you know all of this. Flow, tears, flow. And so three years into their marriage, her husband was away pursuing his education at this time, uh-huh. and his mother became really sick. So Wen stayed home to nurse her while she was also teaching at the local school to pay the bills while she was pregnant with her son. And get this, Hunter, she was 18 years old. After two years, her mother-in-law softened to her. And sadly, she died shortly afterwards in the care of her daughter-in-law. But six years into their marriage, she discovered that her husband have actually been living with another woman this entire time. What? Yeah. So as she was taking care of his mom and his son, he was actually living with his mistress. And so that was a great trial. That was when she describes as the two of them were separated as heaven and earth. It was a great source of sadness for her because her son was then floating back and forth between her and her husband. Mm-hmm. And this child was growing up with no anchor, no roots, pushed about by circumstances. And so mm-hmm. I know that this was another source of shame that she had to endure her failed marriage and her son who did not have a warm home. But during that time, because her marriage was in shambles, she had the opportunity to study the Bible and to continue her education and attend Bible school. And because she did not have a home and a family to care for, she became a missionary in Manchuria. This was when the Lord lit a fire in her soul to tell the good news. So, I don't know, Hunter. It's just 
with all of these biographies that we're learning about, it's so costly. Discipleship and the spreading of the gospel comes with a great cost. Yeah. You know, I think with all these conversations, we often know about, you know, their significant work or something that they did for the Lord that we're like, wow, that is incredible. And often the things that we don't see are the untold story (laughs) of hardship and suffering that the Lord uses to prepare them for what he has prepared for them. Mm -hmm. So what other hardships did Wynne face as she continued kind of in her ministry and as she continued to move forward in her life with pre-communist China and all the things that were unfolding at that period in history. Mm -hmm. So after 15 years serving in Manchuria, she came back down to the southern parts of China because a lot of the missionaries at the time were being kicked out of communist China. And there was an orphanage that needed leadership. And so American missionaries were fleeing to Hong Kong at the time, and they gave Wen the responsibility for the mission orphanage in Taking. And the orphanage was owned and managed and supported by churches in Hong Kong and the United States. It is these foreign alliances that would eventually become the grounds for her arrest. She was arrested a couple of times, but here, get this, Hunter, the first time she was arrested and, okay, we'll pray that we will become this kind of woman. Okay, Hunter, you and me, like if we are arrested <laughs> someday, uh, hopefully we're arrested together, then we can be together. That would be great. I <laughs> want that as, as opposed to the alternative of being arrested alone. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So when we're arrested together, we'll remember this story and we'll try to do this. But during her first arrest, she was arrested on a Sabbath day in 1949. And so she was the principal of the orphanage at the time. And the church service had just started when two policemen arrived and called her name. And she asked them to wait while she put her Bible and her songbook into her bag. So when we're arrested, you know, like when police comes for us and they say, you're under arrest, Hunter and Irene. The, our first response will be, wait, let me grab my Bible and my hymnal. <laughs> Just a second. I know I'm going to need these. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> As she was detained at the police station, she took out her songbook and began to sing. <laughs> It's incredible. That was not accepted. Like everybody else was, you know, prior to that doing the whole ancestry worship. And then now it's like atheism was being pushed, right? All over the whole country. That's right. Atheism was being pushed. And so the police officer is like, what are you doing? And she just responded, you know, matter of factly, I am singing praise to God. This is our worship day. And while The Christians are worshiping at church. I also wish to sing praises. And so she found out later that she was arrested because the orphanage was accused of being associated with foreigners. And so... Yeah, like spies mm -hmm. or something, right? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So that was the reason for the arrest. Wow. Could you unpack a little bit of how that would have been for her as someone from China, immersed in Chinese culture, like with the authority piece and how all of that is just a recurring theme in her life where she has these authorities who are like, you know, whether it be the church members who are looking down on her or um, her mother-in-law, you know, looking down on her or the authorities of like the law enforcement, like arresting her even. And yet her response was just so consistent throughout each one of those instances. What would that have been like for her? I think this is where we want to think about a definition for shame. And so I am helped tremendously by Dr. Taylor Lau here. He wrote this book called Defending Shame. And this is how he defines it. He writes, shame is the painful emotion that arises from an awareness that one has fallen short of some standard, ideal, or goal. The key word is emotion. So shame is an emotion, a painful emotion that arises from an awareness that one has fallen short of some some standard, ideal, or goal. So it can be public, it can be private, like when we are standing naked in front of a mirror, And we see all of our stretch marks and all the ways that our bodies are not perfect. Or shame can happen when we're standing in front of a thousand people. Or as you, Hunter, you and I have microphones right now as we are talking to many other people, even though we're having this this private conversation. And shame can come from within or without. We can feel shame based on other people's treatment and evaluation of us. And we can feel shame based on our own evaluation of ourselves. The point is that it's a feeling. It's not an objective truth. So guilt, as opposed to shame, is something objective. So either we're guilty Mm -hmm. or we are not guilty or we're innocent Mm -hmm. or we are pardoned, we're forgiven. So like we were guilty, but we were forgiven of our guilt. But shame is just an emotion. It's not the objective truth. It's the painful emotion that arises. Our last sponsor for today's episode is PrepDish. PrepDish is the best way for busy people to get healthy meals on the table without the stress. PrepDish subscribers receive an email every week with an organized grocery list and instructions for prepping meals ahead of time. This means dinner time is quick and easy every day. I know this is such a busy time of year for many of us and our families value having quality, delicious home-cooked meals on the table. So to make meal preparation even easier, you have to try the Prep Dish Super Fast Meal Plans, where you can prep five healthy dinners in just one hour. That means just one hour of meal prepping will set you up for success for the rest of the week. If you want to serve healthy homemade meals without the stress, Prep Dish's founder, Allison, is offering listeners a free two-week trial. Check out prepdish.com slash journey for this amazing deal. Again, that's prepdish.com slash journey for your first two weeks free. 
you know, we talk a lot about mom guilt and we have mom guilt all the time. But what we truly mean is actually mom shame. Because it's not necessarily that we're guilty. Because I feel mom guilt, quote unquote, when I did not feed my kids vegetable that day. You know, but it's not... Uh, what is that guilt based on? The Bible does not tell us you shall feed your children vegetable every day. But what I'm feeling is I'm feeling shame. I'm feeling shame from this ideal, this standard that I have set for myself in my head that good mothers should give their children vegetable. Yeah. Do you think that when was feeling shame how has her story been kind of instructive and helpful for you in your own wrestling with shame and guilt yeah so i think that through all of these different circumstances and arrests and then later on she was put in prison she was shamed and i think that the authorities were trying to provoke shame in her but because of the power of the Holy Spirit, she did not feel ashamed, even though she was being put to shame. In fact, I think there was a certain glory about her. She felt honored to be suffering for the sake of the gospel. And instead of feeling rejected, she felt accepted and she lean on her acceptance in the Lord. And so she has this unquenchable sense of belonging to God, as we've mentioned before. And she would not be manipulated by those people who are trying to shame her. I love hearing about how she just had this deep understanding of her belonging and how that belonging to the Lord caused her to behave as one who belongs in him. <laughs> and I would love to do that in my own life. And I'm really curious, like what aspects of her life did you see her kind of embracing that belonging? And like, how do you see that played out in her life? Mm-hmm. This is a surprising thing uh, that I did not expect, which is the word meekness comes to mind when I think about her. And it's surprising because when I think about when she is such a strong, stubborn person, right? Like right. even in the face of arrest and imprisonment, she's like, no, I will not yield. And in fact, this is exactly how the Bible describes meekness because Jesus says in the Beatitude, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And those who are meek shall inherit the earth means that in order to inherit, we must first be a child of God. And this is a consistent theme that we see in Wen's life. She is so sure of her identity in Christ. She's so sure that she belongs to her heavenly father. And because she's a child of God, because she belongs to him, she submits under his authority. So no matter what comes, she is in a safe place because she knows that as long as she obeys Christ, she will be in his will. 
And so meekness is not weakness, is not shyness, is not all these passive words that we think of. Timidity. Yeah, timidity. That's right. Timid is another word that we associate with meekness. But meekness is a courageous acceptance of Yahweh's will. And so that's why she's able to say, I belong to the Lord. I am his responsibility. And Mm. she is trusting that her heavenly father knows her completely and loves her completely. And it is in this meekness that she lives out her faith. And I think this is where I'm just so challenged by her. I'm so challenged by her because that is the standard that she has set for herself. And I'm sure that like she has other kinds of sin in her life and I don't know what they are, but she has this steadfast fear of the Lord. And because of her steadfast fear of the Lord, she is constantly living before the face of God. In Latin, there's a phrase called quorum Deo. And so it is in his presence that she lives. And so because she lives in the presence and in the face of God, all the other faces, as the hymn would say, grow strangely dim. And so here's another quiz for you, because we're into <laughs> quizzes whenever we yes, have conversations. Yes. What is the opposite of meekness? In our culture, what would be the opposite of a meek person? The opposite of meekness is maybe pride. The opposite of meekness is selectivity. So the opposite of meekness is when we stand over God's word. See, that is kind of a pridefulness, though, right? That's true. But that's us. Like, I was not born an American, but I am now. I've lived in America longer than I've lived in Malaysia. So I must confess that I love my ability to choose when I go to the grocery store. I can choose between dark chocolate or milk chocolate or white chocolate. I have the power to choose dark chocolate because dark chocolate is superior (laughs) to milk chocolate and white chocolate. And this selectivity is so ingrained in our consciousness. And so when we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, what is your will for my life? And he gives it to us through his word. He tells us what his will is. And we go, hmm, that's interesting. I like your suggestion, Lord. And then we walk away. It was like, but we're, we're not going to do that because we regard his counsel as something we can choose to do or not to do because hmm. everything in scripture is a suggestion. Mm-hmm. But because God is God and he is authority over us, in order to understand his word, we must first stand under his word. And that is meekness. The definition of meekness or a meek person is a person who stands under the word of God. And she does this over and over and over again. There was another story how she had a Bible in her bag and she was passing a checkpoint because at that point, the communist government had put several checkpoints along the side of the road where they check your bags 
to see whether you have anything religious or you have anything that is anti-government in your possession. And she had a Bible in her possession and all her friends, all the other Christians, actually all the other pastors or religious workers were throwing their Bibles away because they didn't want to be caught with a Bible. But for when the Bible was her life, her Bible was her compass. Without her Bible, she was nothing. She had no strength. And so her friends, her pastor friends were telling her, no, you need to get rid of it or your Bible is going to get us in trouble. And again, she would say her refrain, I belong to the Lord. I am his responsibility. And she would keep her Bible with her. It got to a point where she was, and this was after her arrest, she had been in prison and now she was out of prison and she had suffered tremendous amounts of torture in prison and now she was out, okay? And she had this opportunity to flee China and to see her son who was waiting for her in the United States. Because at this point, she was an old woman. The communist government saw her as a weak old woman and she was no longer a threat to them. So the society treated her as garbage. And so the government gave her the paperwork to leave China to see her son. So she was standing at the docks at the harbor about to go on this ship where she would be able to see her son for the first time in decades. And she had a Bible in her bag. And again, her friends were telling her, urging her, you have an opportunity to throw that Bible into the ocean right now. Because if they find that Bible in your possession, you're not going to be able to board the ship. And again, her refrain was, I belong to the Lord. I am his responsibility. And she kept her Bible in her bag. And somehow she got through security and they let her Mm. leave China. Her meekness is so completely tied to her resolve to keep the word of God, literally and figuratively. She keeps the word of God close to her at all times. You know, as you were talking, I was just thinking about like my own life and reflecting my own struggle with shame and thinking, man, I wonder how much less I would struggle with shame if my whole world like wins was just enveloped in understanding the will of the Lord by his mm-hmm. word. Like mm-hmm. I think about the verse, mm-hmm. the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, when you were talking, I'm like, that was when, and if I devoted as much time as I did to Instagram or to these other places that give mm-hmm. me measurements, right? They give mm-hmm. me metrics. They give me barometers by which mm-hmm. to, try and measure up but if Mm -hmm. instead Mm -hmm. i was you know i'm not i'm not trying to say we need to do away with everything but like if my focus was so honed in on what does god have to say about how i ought to live my life Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i wonder how much less i would struggle with shame yeah i think our struggle with shame comes from how we confuse it with guilt And that is apparent in the way that we talk, right? When we say, I feel so guilty, 
we can't feel guilty because guilt is an objective thing. Like either we're guilty or we're not guilty, but we can't feel guilty, right? Or we call, or we say we're suffering from mom guilt. Well, we can't suffering yeah. from mom guilt. Right? We've talked about that. So we confuse these two so often. Whenever we feel shame, we think we've done something wrong, but we need to stop ourselves whenever we feel the wave of shame coming on. We need to stop ourselves and we need to think, have I transgressed against my Lord, my heavenly father and his commandments? And that's why the Lord keeps telling us, meditate on my word day and night, because that is the standard by which we are to live. Because if we are living by the standards of this world, the standard of my parents, the standard of my friends, the standard of my husband even, it's not necessarily bad, right? But our shame should not come from these other standards. We should be living before the face of God. And therefore, it is his standards that we need to live by and not anybody else's. That's such an instructive word for me. I One thing that you've told me in the past that I found incredibly helpful is understanding that sometimes my feelings of shame or maybe even my right guilt may be misdirected. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Okay. So for those who are like not doing dishes or like feeding children, this was helpful for me to write down. And so I'll give it a list to you. These are all the different combinations of shame and guilt because I'm just that kind of person. I am, this is what I struggle with. This is what is deeply rooted in my soul. And this was really helpful for me to just distinguish between the difference between shame and guilt. So we can be guilty and feel shame. And this is where I call when shame and guilt are aligned. So in the Garden of Eden, Shame and guilt were aligned with God's standard because God told them not to eat from this tree and they ate from this tree. And so it was actually right for them to feel ashamed. And so that also compelled the prostitute to to cry and weep at Jesus' feet. And Jesus tells her, those who have been forgiven much, love much. So That is the right response when we feel ashamed and if we're truly guilty. But see, the thing is, Hunter, so many times in my life, though, my guilt and my shame are crooked. I can be guilty and not feel ashamed. So that's not good because then then I don't go to God for forgiveness. I don't repent. Or I can be shamed by other people, but not be guilty. That's the case with when. She was shamed by her mother-in-law. She was shamed by the authorities. She was shamed by the people at church, but she was not guilty. She can feel shame. And so here's the other crazy story. When she was in prison, she felt bad because she was not rejoicing, which is just ridiculous. So she feels shame, but she was obviously not guilty. You know, she was not doing anything wrong. Or we can be, shame by other people and feel shame and interpret those feelings as being guilty when we're not guilty. 
So our feelings about our bodies would be an example of this. We are shamed by culture and we feel shame. And then we interpret those feelings of shame as like, it's because I ate too much dessert the other night. It's because I'm not working out as I should be. It's because I'm not taking care of myself as I should be. And so we are shamed by culture and we feel shame and we interpret the feelings of shame as being guilt when we have not transgressed against God's standard. Yeah. And the last category is, I think, the most tricky one. I can feel shame and interpret those feelings as being guilty of one particular sin when in reality, I'm feeling shame because I'm guilty of entirely different sin. And so an example of this would be when I was 10, I collected stamps. And my mother, even though we did not have very much, we were, I belonged to a pastor's family. And so we were poor by the world standard. But because my mother wanted to encourage me in my little new hobby, she invested a large amount of money for us at that time in buying some really special stamps. And because I was 10 and I wanted to show my friends at school these stamps, I secretly brought these special stamps to school. At school, when I went to the bathroom, someone stole my stamps. And when I came back to my table or my desk, they were gone. And I was weeping for hours because I knew I was in so much trouble. I was just dying of shame. And I could not bring myself to tell my mom that I had lost these stamps. I was dying of shame. And I interpret the feeling of shame as being guilty of losing the stamps. When in reality... I am actually guilty of an entirely different sin, which was to do something secretly behind my mother's back and obeying her. And so that would be like a childhood memory of how shame and guilt does not align. I love that you brought up how we need to reorient our guilt and shame. I think that's a good example, but I feel like there's so many examples in my own life in just the present day where I feel a sense of shame and guilt over something that may be a little bit more surface level, but I would do well to spend time considering the root, like what is actually the underlying guilt that I may really need to bring before the Lord and Mm -hmm. repent of. Mm -hmm. And if you think about Peter and Judas's story in the book of Matthew, it's really fascinating because Peter denied Jesus three times and then Judas had betrayed Jesus. And then right after Peter's denial of Jesus three times, then we have the account of Judas and how he went back to the leaders and say, please, please take this money back. And that is an example of how both Peter and Judas were suffering from shame because they were both guilty. They were both guilty. But here is the difference between Peter and Judas. And I will just read, I will just read it 
from the book of Matthew, because I think Matthew wants us to know. And the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verse 75, it says, Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And that is the difference between Peter and Judas. In their moment of intense shame, Peter remembered the words of Jesus. Whereas Judas, Jesus has already told him that he's going to betray him. But Judas did not remember the words of Jesus. And because Judas did not remember the words of Jesus, he died in his shame. And here, Hunter, we need to close with the gospel because this is our covering for our shame. This is our ultimate covering. In our gospel retelling, we often remind ourselves that Jesus died for our guilt, that Jesus bore our guilt upon the cross. And that is the best news but here is what I'm learning, Hunter. Jesus also bore our shame. Wow. And here again is the book of Matthew. This is chapter 27, right after Judas hangs himself. Hmm. Here is verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And of course, there's like the shame of the crucifixion. So Jesus not only bore our guilt, our objective guilt on the cross, but he also bore our shame on the cross. We don't need to be ashamed anymore yes. when we're in Christ because his glory, his honor covers our shame. And even when we know we're guilty, even when we yeah. know that our shame is true and right because we've done something wrong, we don't need to be ashamed because of the gospel, because Jesus has taken our shame when he was mocked and reviled and rejected when he was on earth. Mm, that is such good news for you and for me and for all the listeners out there. I am so grateful for the way that you brought us all the way there. And I hope that for myself, I'm going to take this conversation and just continue to think deeply about, okay, where am I experiencing guilt and shame? And how does Jesus meet me there? And how has he already taken those from me? And to be specific about that, because I think the Lord wants to minister it to us in that in that place. So may we be like Peter and mourn over it and experience remembering the words and the life of Jesus. So very good encouragement. That's definitely one of my simple joys 
when it comes to reading Christian biography, just mm-hmm. coming to see God's faithfulness and the gospel flourish in the lives of men and women from church history and to be encouraged that he's going to do the same for me. Tell me, what are some of your simple joys when it comes to reading Christian biographies like Wenwei Xie? Mm, so one of my favorite people in history I wanted to say one of my favorite dead people, but that sounded weird. <laughs> but I said it anyway. <laughs> is um, Amy Carmichael. And you have written a beautiful book that we so enjoyed about Amy Carmichael. But when I read the story of Amy Carmichael, I feel less alone. You know, mm. and she, even though she didn't have any biological children, she had hundreds of adopted children and her experience of motherhood is it makes me feel not alone and so I love reading biography for that reason and Elizabeth Elliot once wrote when she was writing Amy Carmichael's biography actually she writes we read biographies to get out of ourselves and into another's skin and so I love meeting friends as we are reading biographies because it's like what C.S. Lewis says friendship begins the moment when you say me too and so I have a lot of those moments whenever I'm reading biography another biography I love is Rosaria Butterfield biography when I read her biography I was circling like crazy going me too and I can't believe you too. And so I've never met her before, but in my mind, I call her my professor because I feel um, so understood by her in her biography, in her autobiography. I love both of those things. And, you know, I think even with the story that we've discussed today, it's instructive for the future too, like a mentor would be such an encouragement. Do you have like a figure from church history? Is there somebody who's Mm -hmm. had just a really profound impact on your journey with Jesus? The first person in history that really changed me was Jonathan Edwards, actually. Oh, cool. That's Brooks's favorite. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's because I came across his writings about the religious affections. He was saying things that, I mean, I was only 22 years old when I came across his writing, but he was distinguishing between the true marks of the spirit from the false marks of the spirit. And I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could say, even if someone were to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, I didn't know you could say like, that's not of God. And that really changed my life because when I was back in Malaysia, there was just some um, false teachers that were coming into the churches in Malaysia at the time. And I thought just because they were using the name Jesus Christ, we need to accept all of their teaching because like, why else would they be talking about God? And Jonathan Edwards gave me that freedom to compare their words with the words of God and the freedom to distinguish the marks of the Holy Spirit from false teaching 
And so that was really helpful. Well, that's such uh, fruit in your life. I mean, having seen that played out over decades now, you know, when I talk to you, your standard really is God's standard. And I so appreciate that. And I know that uh, that is only by God's grace in your life. And yet it is such a grace for him to have intersected me with you, my friend, to challenge me to have a biblical standard for the way I go about my life. So thank you so much for sharing that and for sharing someone who's encouraged you in that. It's been a joy to talk about uh, when today on the Journey Women podcast with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Mm, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. As Irene mentioned, this series was inspired by my upcoming picture book biography on missionary Amy Carmichael, which releases June 19th. Amy is one of my personal heroes, and I am honored to be able to share her story with all of our children. You can learn more by searching for Amy Carmichael, the brown-eyed girl who learned to pray wherever books are sold. We pray that this entire series has inspired you to imitate the godly examples of the women that we have had the privilege of discussing. Here are a few snippets of things you shared with us that you've learned as you've listened. I loved what Esther Kim said in spite of my weakness and sinfulness, the Lord gave me the grace to walk and work with Him. And we can be intimidated thinking that these women were extraordinary, but they were faithful to the Lord and He used them. And we also can be encouraged to be faithful to the Lord and He will use us as well. I have been so grateful for this season of the Journey Women podcast. Um, hearing interviews about women of faith throughout history, their trials and challenges, and how they practically surrendered to God and what it actually looks like to be a woman of faith. It was so impactful to me and just really stirred within my heart what it looks like to be faithful to God when He is always faithful to you in every season. Thanks so much for listening. As always, if you found this series helpful, consider sharing Journey Women with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. Lastly, if you're looking for resources from this series, you can find our Journey Women specific storefront with 10 of those bookstore at the link in our show notes. As mentioned, this is our last episode for a while, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss new episodes. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. See you next time.